back in the 60s and 70s, and, uh, you know, we, we lived in a broadcasting media environment, whether in the UK or the US or other countries, you know, there were a couple of major television stations that, that pretty much captured all of the viewership. And when you fast forward to today um, with, with uh, cable and, you know, all, all of the options that are available on social media, we're, we're very much in a narrow casting media environment, which, which means that it's, it's actually quite possible to, and, and companies do this, some companies do this, it's, it's very possible to customize and personalize the messages and products that we sell to people based on their individual characteristics and needs. So sometimes we refer to this as a market of one. We each are a market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another CX Insider podcast episode. In today's episode, I will talk with Michael Solomon about traditional and postmodern marketing, the complex decision-making processes of today's consumers, and the rising demand of humanoid robots. everyone again. I hope you all had a lovely weekend and enjoyed one of the last moments of late summer, depending on which country you're in. In today's episode, I interviewed a very interesting guest, Michael Solomon, who is a professor of marketing at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, an industry consultant, a keynote speaker, and an author of textbooks on consumer behavior, fashion psychology, social media marketing, and advertising. He's an expert in his field and has been advising big brands like Calvin Klein, BMW or eBay on how to understand their customers. I read Michael's latest book called The New Chameleons, How to Connect with Consumers Who Defy Categorization. And I must say, the premise of the book quite challenges the way most traditional marketers think. You know, I do uh, a lot of keynote talks to organizations. And, and of course, as you might expect, I get a lot of requests for the future. You know, what, uh, what are the trends that we need to be looking at, uh, uh, whether COVID or, or related or, or more generally. And as I started to put together a few of these talks, I, I realized that many of the basic assumptions that, that we make about customers uh, really are no longer valid in what we might call a postmodern world where traditional labels and categories really don't make as much sense anymore. And I, I started to look at this and, and realized I, I identified a fairly long list of even some very basic dichotomies that, that we all use. And mea culpa, I teach them to my students as, as well. Uh, basically, you know, the, we kind of questioning the, the wisdom of putting people into fairly large homogeneous groups and thinking that if we assign them this segmentation label that we understand them and furthermore assuming that everybody we put in that group is pretty much the same and uh, the the evidence is is that that's that's no longer the case and we could talk about some of the specific dichotomies but uh, but just in terms of segmentation in general uh, you know today compared to 20 or 30 years ago, 
for a variety of reasons. We're, we're all much more individualistic than we used to be. And, and what I've sensed is a, a growing desire for proactivity among customers. That is, they no longer want to be marketed to, they want to be marketed with. So they want to become part of the process. And so right there, that kind of obliterates one of the basic dichotomies I talk about, which is producers and consumers. And so, for example, when you look at the gig at the gig economy and all of the ways that consumers actually are taking on marketers' roles today, you you can see that it's a very change, uh, dynamic and changing environment, and it's actually probably uh, harmful in some ways to just put people into these big categories because they're they're not going to want to be there. And so, you know, I came up, I, I developed this metaphor of a chameleon because, of course, as we all know, chameleons change their colors to adapt to changes in the environment, and they can do that very quickly. And so, I think, in a way, many of us are new chameleons in that we're changing our identities constantly. And and as we change these identities, whether it's, uh, you know, in terms of choosing from different lifestyles, different things that we that we are exposed to online, perhaps that we wouldn't see in our physical worlds, uh, we we really are, are much more flexible and dynamic than I think a lot of marketers give us credit for. As you know, marketing segments are usually based on categories like demographic, psychographic, and so on. And once you find a group of people of similar characteristics, you give them a label. Late millennials, affluent millennial, millennial Henrys, yuppies, boomers. But these stereotypes don't always fit. How, for example, how would you label a traditional feminine woman buying t-shirts in the men's section? Or Gen Z's wearing skinny jeans? <laughs> the most paradoxical term I am personally aware of, I would say, is flexitarian. And for those who don't know what it is, it means an occasional vegan. Basically, a person who eats what they want. In reality, I do think that most flexitarians wouldn't actually define themselves as flexitarians. But to put this into a context, in 2021, when more and more people are starting to realize they don't fit into their prescribed genders and identities are constantly evolving, it is courageous to think of consumers as segments and not individuals. That being said, our brains are wired to categorize things just to make sense of the world around us and to make it easier to learn. But how did we move from marketing to many to marketing to one? Well, of course, the first answer always goes to technology. Because, you know, it goes without saying we've seen some pretty major changes there in the last 20 or 30 years. But if you think about it uh, back way back before you were born, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, we, we lived in a broadcasting media environment, whether in the UK or the US or other countries. You know, there were a couple of major television stations that that pretty much captured all of the viewership. And when you fast forward to today um, with with uh, cable and, you know, all, all of the options that are available on social media, we're we're very much in a narrow casting media environment, which which means that it's it's actually quite possible to and, and companies do this. Some companies do this. It's it's very possible to customize and personalize 
the messages and products that we sell to people based on their individual characteristics and needs. So sometimes we refer to this as a market of one. We each are a market. Uh, with the technology that we had in the 60s and 70s, we couldn't do anything about that. And at that time, we hadn't splintered in the way our culture hadn't fragmented or splintered the way it is now. Uh, but today, we clearly are very fragmented. And, we're, and many of us are looking to sample experiences from other lifestyles, other parts of the world, and and largely thanks to the internet, but also, uh, you know, uh, the ease of travel, uh, COVID being hopefully a temporary bump in the road there. But uh, so many of us have the opportunity to, to encounter people and lifestyles in other parts of the world uh, that it's hard for us to just be confined to our traditional expectations. So it's a very different world that we live in today. Technology is allowing us to make our decisions differently. Do you also sometimes sign up to receive the latest deals and discounts on products you might potentially buy, and so you happen to collect and evaluate the information about a certain product before you recognize the need or motivation to buy it? Today, the decision-making model looks more like a tree with a very rich and complex crown rather than a linear process. There's been an enormous amount of research done over the years on this linear model that you're referring to, uh, and it's still valid in, in some cases, but uh, we, we don't live in a linear world anymore. And, and particularly for younger people, you know, it's, it's all about hyperclicks and, and things like that. So the, this idea of doing things in, in lockstep uh, really, you know, often doesn't hold up anymore. And, and the same is true for making decisions. So this traditional model assumes that, first of all, that we're motivated to solve a problem. Uh, and, the, and so our process begins when we realize we have a problem. And, and it can be a minor problem, like I ran out of milk, or it could be a major problem, like, uh, you know, I need to define what my career is going to do next. But regardless of the problem, we then look for information uh, to help us solve the problem. We, we usually narrow down our options to a few alternatives. We, according to the, the model anyway, we coolly and calmly assess the pros and cons of each, much like a computer would make a decision and then evaluate the quality of that decision. Well, the problem with that is that, for example, we're, many of us are in a constant stage of information search today. Whether we want it or not, we're getting enormous amounts of information from our networks, our social media, giving us recommendations about what to buy, uh, cautions about what to avoid. And, and so uh, it, it's not that we're waiting to solve a problem to search for information. We're doing it all the time. So we, you know, today, what I refer to in the book as the always on consumer is somebody who's not waiting for a need to arise. Like I, I need to buy a, a new uh, blouse today because they, people are constantly sending this information and acting on it and giving feedback. And so uh, what we tend to observe today, I think, is more of a, a circular or at least a nonlinear process where there's this constant flow of information, or I should say many flows of information that we tap into and we, we kind of tap into those and tap out of them in and out, in and out all day long and perhaps all, all night long. And 
And so this this model of the rational decision maker who goes through this series of steps is 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 probably not valid for many purchases. And another difference is that uh, under the traditional perspective, although we certainly acknowledge that other people influence what we decide to buy, it's 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 really a model of a lone decision maker. And today that that really isn't the case. You know, every a lot of people are, you know, I, as I like to say, we've moved from the era of me to the era of we. And so it's much more about collective decision making. And the traditional model doesn't really reflect that very much. I remember when I was a child and social media was a new thing, whatever happened on those platforms stayed on those platforms. Whereas today, Social media is an extension of our social lives. It's a blended reality. You are in the process of making a purchase decision and the members of your reference groups influence your decision enormously. But where are they? They are on Pinterest, Instagram, WhatsApp, school, work. As Michael says in his book, it now takes a whole village to buy a prom dress. And conversely, consumers post about their decisions in their lives on social media to get validation from other people. It's a way more complex network than it used to be in the past. I, I find that people need to validate their existence, you know, constantly. I've had, I've had students tell me, I think I even wrote this in, in the book, that, you know, they, they weren't aware that their partner broke up with them until they read about it on Facebook, you know, and, and um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that we're probably unnecessarily complicating things uh, to, to some extent, but, uh, you know, each to his own, I guess. <laughs> In many of our episodes, we often touch on artificial intelligence and automation. We discuss consumer responses to chatbots or robotic customer service agents. But what about humanoid robots? Is it really a science fiction still? Are we ready for Sophia from Hanson Robotics to become a member of our household? I don't think we're we're ready quite yet, but I'm not sure that it's going to be quite that draconian. I you know, I think as I write about in that chapter, I'm talking about the 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 merger or the fusion of humans and machines. And for example, many of the many of the devices that a lot of people have literally in their bodies, you know, hip implants and pacemakers and things like that. Uh, and on the other hand, you have machines that are becoming more human like, you know, and androids and uh, some of these robots that that have been introduced already into the marketplace that exhibit very human like qualities. So. Uh, I, I think we, we're heading more towards uh, kind of a cyborg existence, and a cyborg is a uh, widely used in science fiction, but it's science fact today, you know, a, is a combination of both human and machine elements. And I, I think we've reached that point. So uh, it's not whether we're got so much going to reject what computers tell us, it's are we going to know whether they are computers or whether they are flesh and blood? Whether we could recognize the difference between a robot and a human being is one thing. And we'll talk about the uncanny valley in a moment, but could they actually replace a human is the other thing. 
Let me give you a couple of examples. The University of Hertfordshire has created a humanoid robot called Casper to help autistic children learn social skills. With the current trial evaluating the effectiveness of these robots, there is a big potential they could be implemented across the NHS. Another study conducted by researchers from the University of Bedfordshire, Middlesex and Advenia Healthcare investigated the effect of socially assistive robots on older people experiencing loneliness. The study reported significant improvement of this condition. The first question we might ask is to what extent could these robots replace a human connection? And the other, what are the ethical implications of marketing these machines as a suitable human replacement in social interactions? Yeah, well, you know, the, the ethics of it are maybe a, maybe a bit troublesome, but, you know, let, let's start with, with the basic contention. You know, uh, the, the reality is that we've always looked at products as if they were our friends. In the sense, and what I mean is that we find in, in research that, that people form relationships with brands that very strongly resemble those that they have with other people. Sometimes they love them. Sometimes they hate them. Uh, sometimes it's a master-slave relationship where you're a slave to your laptop or you know something like that. And, and so we people always have that tendency to, uh, to uh, infer human characteristics uh, to products. That's a major part of branding strategy, in fact. And so this is really not as disruptive as it first sounds, although I'll grant you that this is a bit more extreme. Uh, I, I, I think that there are a lot of very positive uh, potential consequences here. I'm not sure that we're, we're ever going to replace human caregivers. But when, when you look at, at, at caregiving as an activity, and you know, I'm sure it's similar in the UK. I know in, in the US, something like 25% of all adults are caregivers. It's a very, very stressful job with a lot of burnout. Uh, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's not even the person who's getting the care. That's the person who's giving the care. And, and, and there are substitutes, you know, there, uh, in terms of every day, when you're talking about alleviating loneliness or something like that, uh, you know, uh, people get a get attached to stuffed animals, um, you know, and I'm aware of, of older people, um, uh, you know, who, who I know, um, who, who really do feel a lot better when they have just having a cat in, in the, in their house and the cat doesn't talk back as far as I know. So, uh, you know, and, and when it gets, you know, the ethical issues probably enter in when you start to get back to your earlier question about cyborgs, you know, when, when you start to, to, uh, portray the the machine as a person, then we have some interesting questions. You know, when does a machine become a person? When does a person become a machine? But in the short term, you know, in the in the practical sense, and I and I, you know, I don't pretend to be an, an expert on uh, on geriatrics or anything like that. But uh, you know, we we know. I mean, there was a classic study many many years ago uh, in an old age home where. Just giving the a resident of that home uh, a potted plant to take care of, that he had to water or she had to water every day, had tremendous impact on their mental health and and their longevity. And that was just because they had something that they could interact with. So uh, I I think it's mostly positive. I don't mean to dismiss any of the ethical 
concerns that are apply more generally to humans and, and robots. But uh, this is one of those cases that that I think is is probably a winning proposition, at least until we figure out another way to address these very glaring issues. Let's say we will implement socially assistive robots to care homes in the near future because there won't be enough caregivers. To what extent does the physical appearance matter in order to form trust with the consumer? You know, having done research for many years on on service encounters and one of the factors being the appearance of a service provider, human service provider, uh, we know that the source of a message is extremely powerful. And people either believe a message or don't believe it, often based on who they think the source is. So there are, uh, I'm, I'll try to give a short answer to a question that actually will requires a longer one, but but basically uh, we, we we take a lot of information away from the appearance of the entity, whatever that is that we're interacting with, person or machine. And so personalizing robots uh, certainly helps to create a, a sense of trust and, you know, and foster interactions. And, uh, you know, I find it interesting. The same is true, by the way, for avatars, you know, online avatars that we see all over the place. Uh, you have companies that spend enormous sums of money to do research on exactly who their, let's say, celebrity spokesperson should be. Because just, just because a person is famous doesn't mean that they're going to be an effective spokesperson for your brand. So they're very, very picky about that, but they don't seem to be very discriminating when it comes to choosing an avatar or you know what a robot is going to look like that's going to represent them. And I think that's a really, really big mistake. Have you ever seen The Lion King from 2019, Polo Express or Sophia the Robot? The one thing they all have in common is the degree to which they resemble a human being. And the degree is what many scientists call uncanny valley. How do those images make you feel? Strange, uneasy, uncomfortable? Yeah, you know, that's uh, the, the uncanny valley that people talk about where it's, it's really creepy to see an animated you know, person who looks so real. Um, Having said that, you know, I'm I I think that that is going to change because I think that people are getting much more used to the notion that they they can see an animated character who is so lifelike. You know, when when a lot of this stuff was done, this was back in the uh in the 1970s where people used to talk about the uncanny valley, but the the ability to to make that kind of simulation was so rare that it really flipped people out when they encountered it. Uh you know, today, when you look at some of the um, technology that, that basically can turn literally you into an avatar, and, and I've seen this, you know, uh, in a number of places, it, it is very hard to distinguish from, uh, you know, which is the avatar and which is the real person. And my guess is that especially young people today who have grown up understanding that just because a person looks realistic, maybe they're, they're not flesh and blood. I don't know if that uncanny valley is going to persist, but I could be wrong. Only time will tell. Is it really just a matter of time till consumers get used to the novelty and will gradually build trust with humanoid robots? And how will this transform the concept of customer experience as we know today? 
At the end of the day, Google Assistants can already call a hair salon to make an appointment and you wouldn't be a- even able to recognize the difference between a robot and a human. You know, I think that customer experience is, is the latest frontier for us at, in marketing. Uh, everybody's talking about it, which which they should be. But I think we're, we've only scratched the surface when it comes, especially when we look at the interaction with these, with these technological interfaces. Uh, there's a lot more that we can do to, to understand both, both the marketing potential and also, as you so wisely pointed out, the ethical ramifications of, of a society where uh, humans are robots and robots are humans to some extent. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode and if you did, please don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite channel and follow us on LinkedIn and we can start a conversation. If you are interested in what Michael does, visit his website michaelsolomon.com, check out his latest book called The New Chameleons, How to Connect with Consumers Who Defy Categorization, a link provided in the episode description and I will see you in two weeks.